Welcome to Midweek, a place where we dive deep into Scripture. So grab your Bible, a pen, and a notebook, and get ready to study God's Word. All right, tonight we're going to go into John chapter 2. And so if you open your Bibles at John chapter 2, and it's the wedding at Cana, and it's one of the great, great uh, events in, in, in the gospel. Uh, we're going to see where Jesus turns the water into wine. And, of course, that is a miracle that goes against, you know, nature. And the naturalist or the materialist will say, you know, no, that, that's impossible. That's non-scientific. You can't have miracles. You're going against the physical laws that govern the universe. Now, if, you wanna, if anybody ever throws at you physical laws that govern the universe, my first question then would be, where do those physical laws even come from? Who created those physical laws? Always take them back further behind their question because somebody had to have created that. And we've already talked about on Sunday mornings how there's evidence that there is the designer, uh, uh, immaterial, um, all-powerful mind, a spirit that created, that, that started this, something like that started this whole thing. We call that God. So you always look at the, the statement behind there. Now, <clears throat> one of the first things I want to show you before I get really, before we go verse by verse in it, I want to show you something that's really cool in my mind, and that is this. How many of you ever heard, obviously, of the seven days of creation in Genesis, right? We all know that one, right? Okay, but have you ever heard of the seven days of John, the gospel of John? You ever heard that one right there? Now watch the seven days of John. They're not chronological, but they are there. Now watch. In your Bible, I'm going to make you jump very fast. We're going to start in chapter 2. Look, look, look at verse 1. It says, and on the third day. But hold it right there. Just remember third day. Got that so far? Now turn back to John chapter 1 and look at verse 29. And it says, the what? It says the next day. Okay, stop right there. Look at verse, uh, and let me read the whole thing. He saw Jesus coming to him and said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Now look at verse 35. Again, the... What is it? Again, the, the next day John was standing with two of his disciples, etc., etc. And then look at verse 43. It says, the, the next day, right? And then you go to John chapter 2 and verse 1. It says, on the, on the third day. Now, if you put all that together, once again, not chronological order. When it, and by the way, because it's not chronological order because in John 2, 1, the third day, it means the third day after previous events, what, what happened. So it's not, not played out well, like one day, two days. But now let's put it together and think of it like this. First off, you have before you have on day one, because when the first time you read, the next day, that's moving to day two. So you have John the Baptist. He's out there preaching. He's a voice in the wilderness. He's in the desert, is he not? And so that's a picture of human, humankind's condition that we are in the desert because of our sins. Now, <clears throat> that's day one. And then it moves to the next day as we read in verse 29. The next day, and then it says in John, that John the Baptist saw Jesus. He says, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Remember that one we just read? So now you move from John out there preaching and man's condition is sinner separated from God. Now it says, behold the Lamb. Now we have the imagery of the cross of Jesus Christ. You follow me so far? So that's the next day. Now let's go to the next day, which would be day three where the two disciples in verses 35 to 38, when Jesus, when John, who's one of these, John the, the disciple, and one other one leaves John the Baptist, they follow Jesus, and, and Jesus says, what do you want? What do you seek? And they say, where are you staying? So where are you dwelling? So now you find where people want to dwell with Jesus Christ. So you could say that's a picture of the church, the birth of the church 
on the day of Pentecost. But it doesn't end right there because then you get to verse 43 in chapter 1. It says, and the next day. And you follow that order right there. And you know there's Nathaniel. When Jesus sees Nathaniel, who's a Jewish man, he says, behold, an Israelite in whom there is no deceit. Remember, there's no Jacob in, in this guy right here. And so now you take from there that Jesus is reaching the Jews. So now you see the church age done, and now he's reaching the Jews because the Jews are not thrown away by God. Romans chapter 11 says they're going to come back into play when we are raptured out and the church age is over, and now the Jews will be the evangelists on planet Earth during the tribulation period. Amen? And then you come to the seven, to, uh, John 2 verse 1, so you have one, two, three, four days, and then three days, five, six, seven. So you come to the seventh day, and what happens in John chapter 2? There's a wedding in Cana, right? And so at the end of all things, you have the, the wedding supper of the Lamb in heaven as you follow the seven days of John. So you followed all of history in those seven days. Did you catch everything right there? It's an amazing thing if you follow those things. Voice in the wilderness, the first day. The cross, behold the Lamb, it's the second day. The third day, where are you staying? Birth of the church, we dwell with Jesus. Fourth day, behold an Israelite, that's the Jews in the tribulation period. Then five, six, seven, then the wedding supper of the Lamb in, in heaven when we're all together. So it's the seven days of John as you put those things all together. So here we go. That's just a fun little side note right there. I hope you like that one. But John chapter one, as we look at the wedding of Canaan, <clears throat> And it says this in John chapter 1. On the third day, there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Now, <clears throat> it's interesting now, moving apart from what we just said, the third day. I like that because what day did you, how many days did it take before Jesus rose from the dead? What day? On the third day, that's right. Do you remember which day of the week in Genesis and creation when, when land appears and the water subsides a bit? Do you remember what day that was? That's the third day. Do you remember what day it was when fruit begins to grow on the land? It's on the third day. So you see all this type of growth and these things happening in the creation on the third day. But one thing I really liked, and I heard this a long time ago. I don't know if any of you have ever heard of the late, great Chuck Missler. Anyone remember Chuck Missler at all? Okay, good. Great, great teacher. And I used to love to listen to him. I used to buy his, his uh, first his cassettes and then his uh, CDs after that a long time ago. He's passed away now. But one of the things, as I, as I, as I get to that, did I, did I jerk my nose? No, I'm good. You know, one of the things he said was this. On the third day, third day of creation, where I talk about the land emerges in, cre in creation, then fruit, vegetables begin to grow. But if you look at the third day in Genesis creation, because the wedding's on the third day. On that day, you find God saying in Genesis 1, twice, that it was good. He doesn't say it once, he says it twice. And so Chuck Missler, I remember teaching in one of his things I was listening to a long time ago, he said the reason why they get married on third day, which would be like their Tuesday, I believe, is that there's a double blessing. God said it was good twice. And so they get married on the third day. And that's just a cool little tidbit right there. Now, about Jewish weddings. Now, Cana is about four miles away from Nazareth where Jesus grew up. And since Jesus' mother is very involved in this wedding, as we'll read about that, it's more than likely that whoever's getting married is a relative of Jesus. It just makes perfect sense. Now, in their day, unlike our day in America, the marriages were arranged by the parents. If you're dating, you hate that. If you're a parent, it's the greatest thing you've ever heard in your life, right? 
because you think you know better who to pick out for your kids than anybody else. Now, what would happen as they come together, vows were spoken, and they were legally married at that time, but then they would separate uh, from each other for anywhere from two months to a whole year. It was during that time, it's called a betrothal, in that time, that's when Mary is told by the angel during her betrothal that she will uh, be impregnated by the Holy Spirit. She's, I'm, 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 she's not married, so it's going to be scandalous. She's, in her culture, she's really legally married, but they have not come together and consummated. That's why it's looking really, really bad for her in that situation. Now, at the end of the two months or the year, uh, the groom now has been waiting. He will now come back, and it will be nighttime. And he will come in a torch-lit procession, and all of his friends are with him, and they'll be singing, and he comes to take his bride home. And when he takes her home, there's going to be a feast for one week. Their weddings, you thought the weddings you've been to lasted a long time? This is going to be seven days, guys. That's the way their weddings were. Seven days long, and they feasted. Now, the groom's family... Unlike today, I think the, the father of the bride, he pays for everything. Have you ever seen that movie, Father Bride? But anyway, the groom's family, they provide all the food and they provide all the drink. And they would invite as many people as they could, including all the uppity-up religious leaders. That's just the way it was in that culture. So now you get a picture of why this is going to be uh, a little bit dicey for the family uh, of the groom. Look at verse 2. And both Jesus and his disciples were invited to the wedding. Now, I love that, that Jesus was invited to the wedding because when I was younger and I used to, I don't do much anymore, and I used to debate Mormons whenever they'd come to my door. I loved it. I loved debating Jehovah's Witnesses. I loved it. And by the way, if you don't like doing that or you're kind of nervous at it, the one thing I would just tell you to do when they come to your door is ask them how you are saved. How do I get to whatever their concept of heaven is? Ask them that, and they're going to always tell you, oh, it's by faith, and say, okay, so it's just by faith. I don't have to do any works at all, any good works, and they're going to have to admit it. Oh, no, you got to do good works. So, and, so wait a minute. So I'm saved by what I do? Oh, yeah, you're saved by what you do. You got to get them there, because that's what they truly believe. They're not going to tell you that, but that's what they truly believe. Once you get them there, you've heard me say this, that I'm saved by what I do, my good works, then you ask them, how many is enough? A hundred? Two fifty? Five hundred? A thousand? Tell me when I have enough good works so I've done enough and I know I'm going to heaven and then I can do whatever I want after that. I always get them to that point because they're baffled. They don't know what to do with that because they are saved by what they do. So, what I like about this, that Jesus was invited, do you know that Mormons, and I'm going to tell you this, but they do believe back in their books that Jesus got married at the wedding of Cana. Did you know that? So when I talk to them, I always say, question, do you get invited to your wedding or are you the inviter of people? Oh, you're the inviter. I go, well, let's look here. Jesus got invited to his own wedding. And what makes it worse, look at verse 12. Look at verse 12. After this, he went down to Capernaum. This is after the wedding. He and his mother and his brothers and his disciples, and they stayed there a few days. So he gets invited to his own wedding. I'm talking to a Mormon. And afterwards, then he leaves and leaves his wife and goes with his mama? Are you kidding me? So I, I always show him how ridiculous this thing is of what they're trying to believe. Now, 
Verse 3. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. Now, the wine runs out, and in that culture, the father, the parents of the boy, the groom, this is social suicide. If food ran out, drink ran out, then you would be the subject of jokes for years in that community. So for the family, they evidently, they did not plan well. Now, with that said, let me give you an application. Jesus attends the wedding, correct? That means he affirms and he approves of marriage, does he not? Yes, he does. He affirms that God invented marriage. He affirms it's marriage between only a man and a woman. Amen to that one? Now, here's the big deal about that before we move on. <clears throat> if you ever, oh, let me put it this. You remember when the, the disciples asked Jesus about marriage and divorce? Do you remember what Jesus said? He said, what does it say in the beginning? What in the beginning? So Jesus will always take you to the beginning. Let's go back to the beginning. Do you know that Genesis chapter 1 through verse 11, that's basically your beginning foundational things that everything is built on, and that's the most attacked parts of Scripture that we know about. They will always attack those parts of Scripture. That's why the psalmist says, he makes a great statement, he says in Psalm 11:3, if the foundations be destroyed, what will the righteous do? And so the foundations are always attacked. But marriage is between a man and a woman. Jesus is there at this wedding. But at this wedding, the wine runs out. Wine still runs out at weddings, does it not? Not literal wine. Many times wine in scripture is a picture of joy. And the joy can run out of a marriage. Uh, I, I've been... I've been a, an Assemblies of God um, certified minister and ordained for uh, 37 years. And obviously I've been here 30 years. And I've performed a lot of weddings. I've performed a lot of funerals. And uh, one of the hardest parts of ministry is, you know, you're, you're there at this wedding and you watch this couple and they love each other and they're so joyful and there's so many great things going on and there's so much money spent on this thing. And then about two, three, five years later, this same couple makes an appointment with me and they can't stand each other and they hate each other. And I think, what went wrong? What happened? You know and I'm not kidding when I say they even come in separate cars, sit in two seats, and they're leaning away from each other. And what went wrong? Let me tell you that I think one of the things that went wrong is we find in here. Jesus was invited to the wedding, was he not? And every marriage, every relationship, you got to invite Jesus into your relationship, into your marriage. Do you not? And then you got to keep him as the center of your life, correct? Because if you don't do that, then you're going to lose the joy. I was, uh, back in the late 80s, I was a student ministries pastor, and um, I was invited a couple times to go uh, be part of the baccalaureate for Corona Senior High School. That was the only high school in Corona at the time. A couple times I went, and I wasn't the keynote speaker. They'd always have more, a senior pastor type be the keynote speaker. And I, I remember one year I came in, and I did either the opening or closing prayer. I can't remember. But that year, uh, Pastor Tim Coop, who was the, pastor of Crossroads way back in the late 80s up to about 1990. Some of you remember Tim Coop, right? He's a really good guy. Uh, he moved to Arizona, took a church there. But I remember I was sitting there, 
And Tim Coop, keynote speaker, went up there and he said something that I never forgot in my life. And I thought, wow, that's so true. It's such a simple illustration I'll share with you. He said, he was talking about their future. And he said, one day, some of you, many of you are going to get married. And he said, marriage is like a triangle. And he said, it's the husband on one side, it's the wife on the other side, and God's up here at the point of the triangle. And he's like, he's standing there and he goes, as you move closer and closer to God, closer to God, closer to God, you're, by doing that, you're moving closer and closer to each other. And I remember I sat back and I thought, that is so true. It's such a true concept. It is so simple that the more I move to God and love you moves to God, the closer and closer we, uh, we grow to each other. And so he was right. Now, in this story, the wine runs out. The, the joy is gone. Now, <clears throat> let's take it back to the story in literal wine. Look at verse 4. It says, And Jesus said to her, because remember, there's no wine. She said, there's no wine. They've run out. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does it have to do with us? My hour has not yet come. Now, <clears throat> isn't that kind of a cold, weird response by Jesus? Woman, my hour has not yet come. Now, we live in a different culture, and you have to think of it culturally. When he says woman, it's not like woman. No, it's more like saying ma'am, or even like my lady. It's a very affectionate term, very respectful term. Doesn't Jesus even call her woman when he's dying on the cross? Woman, behold your son. He's saying that to her even at that time. So, <clears throat> And let me give you some possible application, speculation, and some truth here at this one. He doesn't call her mother there. <clears throat> and maybe, just maybe, just maybe, he doesn't call her mother because Jesus knows all things, does he not? Can he look in the future, right? He knows the future. He knows the past, present, he knows all these things. Maybe he could see in the future there would be some religious organizations that would raise Mary up to the position of almost co-redeemer. Am I right? They would raise her up. So he doesn't call her mother right there. I remember I was saved about a year or two. I was a young Christian, so... You know, I was trying to study the Bible best I could, and I got in a debate with uh, somebody of that particular religious persuasion that tried to tell me that Mary's elevated and she's al almost co-redeemer, and, and I'm going, no, that, that's not correct. Uh -uh. And then they said this to me. They said, uh, yeah, even the Old Testament makes reference to the queen of heaven. Does anybody know what the queen of heaven is in the Old Testament? The queen of heaven in the Old Testament is found in Jeremiah 44. That's the Ashtoreth, or Astarte. It's the wife, it's a false god, by the way. It's the wife of the other false god, either Baal or Moloch. And Moloch's the one where they burn the babies on the arms and everything. But she made reference, oh, yeah, even the Old Testament talks about the queen of heaven. And, you know, I'm like, what? what? And, of course, as I study more and more, and I find out, no, no, that's, no, you don't want to go there with that one right there. But, yeah, but they try to elevate her as much as they can. Now, <clears throat> one of the things that you have to pull out why he says, woman, and then he says, uh -uh. you know, my hour's not yet come. It, it is because um, it's transition. At this moment in time, you have to kind of figure, because he's going to start his ministry, that he's transitioning from parental authority. Like he's saying, I'm not under your authority anymore. He, he's going to tell her, my hour's not come. We'll get into that in a second. But he's showing her that I, I'm my own authority now. You're not authority over me. It's, there's a great application there. <clears throat> And that's this. Have you ever just made the foolish mistake of trying to tell your grown-up married kids what to do? Anybody ever do that? That's real fun, isn't it? <clears throat> and they look at you like, basically, would you stay out of my business? 
And even though you know what they're doing is not going to be the best. We know that, right? Because we're smart, right? But you know that you can't treat them like a little kid anymore. And if you do, you're going to put them at odds. What you have to do, watch my hands. When they were little, it was like this. The relationship was like this. You're the parent. And as they grow, 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 what has to happen is you have to become the adult friend of your adult child. Am I right? Am I right? For some of us, we need to get that memo, okay? I have had my kids, adult kids, married kids, on a few occasions sit me down, and I'm not lying, and tell me, Dad, you got to stay out of that right there. That's my decision. And I think, do you know who I am? I'm the senior pastor of the church. No, I don't say that to them. <laughs> I'd like to say that to them. I didn't. But uh, you have to learn that. And that's, I think, what's going on here. You say, nope, you're not my authority anymore. Now, let's take a few more things of that one. When she says they have no wine, what does she want him to do? She wants him to perform a miracle, right? He says, woman, you know, what do I have to do with that? Now, think about her life now when she says they have no wine. Oh, my gosh. For 30 years, what secret has she kept? Who he is. So for 30 years, has she walked in shame in the community? Yes, everybody thought she cheated, or at least her and Joseph had sex before they should have, or she cheated or whatever. For 30 years, she's kept the secret. And now, at this moment, in her mind, isn't it possible that she's thinking, okay, here's the moment now. Everybody's going to know who he is. It's going to redeem me. They're going to know that I wasn't this person. There, all the scuttlebutt and all the rumors were saying, I'm not that person. Does that make sense? And she's saying, come on, do the miracle now, man. This is, this is the time now. Let me give you one more on this too. He says to her, what does that have to do with us? Literally means what to do with you and what to do with me. In other words, leave me out of this. My hour's not come. Why does he insert my hour has not come at a wedding turning when they've run out of wine? That doesn't even make sense. It doesn't make it. You're like, what are you talking about? Well, think of it like this. His mother is trying to keep authority over him, like, do something about this. He says, no, keep me out of this. My hour has not yet come. I'm not under your authority anymore. I'm not going to be subject to your authority. But he says, my hour is not yet come. What is his hour? It's a crucifixion. And in the crucifixion, he will, be, he will allow himself to be subjected to humans. Will he not? So he's saying right now, look, I'm not subjected to humans right now. But there's going to come a moment in my hour, in that time, when I will be subjected again to humans, where they will be able to do to me what they want, and they will crucify me. Does that make sense? So he's really laying out that theologically right there, or his life, I should say. Look at verse 5. It says, his mother said to the servants, whatever he says to you, do it, right? In other words, okay, I got the memo, son, and he, she turns to everybody and says, he's the boss, whatever he says, that's what you do. Isn't that a great move on Mary's part? Yeah, and it's a great lesson for all of us. It's not like, how many of our prayers we tell Jesus what to do? Instead of saying, Jesus, tell me what to do. Tell me what you want me to do. Now, I've been a Christian a long time. Many of you have too. Have you ever heard the statement from Christians, well, I prayed about it. That's a dangerous statement, don't you think? At least for me, it is after all the years I've been listening to this because have you ever heard the person Christian say, they're sincere, 
but they say, I prayed about it. Then they tell you what they're going to do, and it's completely opposite of the scriptures. Ever heard that one before? And you're like, oh my gosh, you know, if there's no way you, who'd you pray to, you know? But by nature, we naturally try to justify our own decisions and what we want, right? And we got to be careful with that. Watch out. She says, whatever he says, you do that. And that's good wisdom right there. Now, look at verse 6 and verse 7. Now there were <clears throat> six stone water pots set there for the Jewish custom of purification, containing 20 or 30 gallons each. Jesus said to them, fill the water pots with water, so they fill them up to the, to the brim. Now, now, these stone water pots at, um, at the wedding, they're sitting off to the side. And these are used for uh, purification, for washing, religious, traditional practices of washing. They had a, the Pharisees had set up all kinds of washings that they had to do when they ate and stuff like that. Now, Jesus says fill them up, so we must assume if he says fill them up, they're either empty or just about empty. So fill them up. Um, Jesus is now going to use these religious vessels for non-religious purposes, and I really like that a lot because that, those vessels are for traditional things that have been made, how they have to do their washings. And Jesus is going to now use it to help people out in their situation, to help these parents out. And I like that, that he's not going with tradition, he's going with love, is he not? So many times we get stuck on our own personal traditions about Christianity, and we don't operate in true love, and we favor our traditions over love right there. Now, <clears throat> look at the picture now. Let me ask you some questions. How many water pots are there? Six. Six is the number of what in Scripture? Mankind. That's right. Because what day was Adam created? On the sixth day. What is the number of the Antichrist? Six, six, six. Three sixes. Three is the number of God. God. Six is the number of man. Three sixes. Because the Antichrist is going to try to show himself to be a God-man like Jesus Christ. So he's three sixes. Okay. Now, <clears throat> are these water pots empty or filled to the brim? They're empty. No, they're, well, no, not yet. Not yet. They're empty, right? Um, now, were our hearts, we are humans, we're the six stone water pots, number men. Were our hearts empty before we came to Christ? That's right, we're empty. Now, what are they made of? They're made of stone, right? Remember, anybody remember having a stone hard heart before you came to Christ? Okay, now we see the picture right there. Now, Jesus says to fill them where? Fill them how? To the brim, that's right. And so we're going to see in John 3 that when we come to Christ, we're born again. It's born of water and of the Spirit. That's going to be a great time in that one right there. And so we see him filled to the brim with water. So you see it's a picture of our life before Christ, and then we get saved, and we're filled to the brim with the Spirit of God. Now, here's what I like about that, and I've always loved this about that filled to the brim statement. In Psalm 23 and verse 5, David writes, he says, my cup runneth over. So that means he's filled to the, the brim. So I'd like to ask myself, and I'll ask you this one. If we're filled to the brim with God's Spirit, when we get tipped, what comes out? When something doesn't go your way, what comes out? When someone cuts you off on the freeway or on the road, what comes out? When the waiter or waitress gets your order wrong, what comes out? Right? You know, <clears throat> whenever I have to get on the phone 
with a company because there's a discrepancy, something they're not doing what they said or the bill's wrong or whatever, they're double charging me. Anybody ever been there before? Isn't that fun having a call? And you go through like four or five different, put you on hold for 80 minutes. But whenever I talk to them, I try, I try to do this. When they're debating back and forth with me, I'll say, look, before this gets anywhere, I say, look, I know, I know that you are just doing your job. I know that you're just following the rules that somebody gave you. I know that. So this is not personal, not whatsoever. I, I understand that completely. And I try to do that because I don't want to be the old prosecutor, prosecuting attorney, Jim. But I do that. And so when I do that, guess what it does for them? Puts them at ease. Do you know you'll get more out of that than you will going at them full blast? You just, it just works way better. A gentle answer turns away wrath. See, here's the question we have to ask ourselves in situations like that, and what, what are we filled with? Why do things become so personal for us? Why is it we think, they're, oh, they're out to get me? Are they really? They, that person on the phone in Kansas City working for this company, last night they went to bed thinking, how can I get Jim in the morning? Because I think he's going to call, you know. Really? Really? Or the person who cuts us off on the freeway, they did that on purpose. They did? They were looking for you all morning. Oh, there they are. I found Jim. I'm going to cut him off right now, right? Or Jim, they take Jim's order. What? I don't like onions. I told you no onions. You put onions all over my hamburger here. You did that on purpose. You think they really were thinking about that the whole time? See, why do we take things personal? Why do we do that? It's a great question for all of us. But back to the question. When we get tipped, what comes out of us? That's a good thing to watch, huh? Real good thing to watch in our lives on a daily basis. So they fill the water pots up, the stone water pots up with the water. So let's see what happens when they're filled up. Verse 8 and 9. And he said to them, draw some out now and take it to the head waiter. So they took it to him. Verse 9. When the head waiter tasted the water which had become wine and did not know where it came from, but the servants who had drawn the water knew, the head waiter called the bridegroom. <clears throat> now, first off, did you, did you notice what Jesus... Jesus never said, water become wine. Right? He doesn't do that at all. All he does is said, fill it with water. Oh, they're full. Okay. Takes him to the head waiter. That's all he says. That's all he says. Now, the head, head waiter tastes it. He knows it's now wine. He doesn't know where it came from. He has no idea. Question. Besides Jesus and his mommy, who knows where the wine came from? Oh, the servants. The servants know where it came from. Not even the disciples knew. So the people closest to Jesus at the time who are serving, they're the ones who knew where the wine came from. Correct? Did Jesus come to serve or to be served? He came to be served. He came as a servant. And the servants will always know what Jesus is doing. Even Amos 3, 7 says that God does nothing until he first reveals it to his servants, the prophets. It's always the servants who know what's coming. It's always the servants who can hear God's voice the best. So if you want to hear God's voice, start serving somewhere. Start doing something for God, and you'll see. Now, let me give you two sidebars on this one right here. The first sign, this is the first sign Jesus is going to perform, and it's turning water to wine. Question, what was Moses' first miracle in Egypt? Water into 
blood. So you see the parallel of the deliverer from Egypt and our deliverer, Jesus Christ. So you see the parallel right there. <clears throat> but now think of Jesus' life. Has he lived in seclusion? Pretty much. But the moment he performs this miracle, what John calls it signs, will his life ever be the same? He's been living as an artisan. Now remember the word artisan. People say, he was a carpenter. He's an artisan, okay? You were a little bit misinformed on that. If you go to Israel, everything's made of stone. So he worked more with stone than he did with wood. He's an artisan. He worked with both. You guys, you got to think of him that way. Now, but his life will never be the same. Wherever he goes, people are going to clamor for him, right? He'll never be able to just relax and eat. Anytime he prays, it'll have to be while everybody's sleeping. Some people now are going to, many people are going to look at him as a menace and try to get rid of him. Ultimately, they will get him, they will crucify him, kill him. And it all begins with turning water into wine at a wedding. It'll never be the same from this moment on. And he knows it. And look at verse 10. And said to him, Every man serves the good wine first. And when the people have drunk freely, then he sees, serves the poorer wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This is the head waiter talking to the groom. He's saying, look, hey, I, I've never experienced this before. Most people at weddings serve the good stuff first. And then they serve the cheap stuff later. You serve the so-so stuff first and the best stuff you've saved for last. It's interesting. Now let's break this down. There's about 120 to 150 gallons of water. Jesus turns 120 to 150 gallons of water into wine. That's about 2,400 cups of wine. Is that a lot? You better believe it's a lot. Now, Scholars, scholars say this, that in that day, they would, um, they would um, go two to three parts water, one part wine is the way they would drink it. Hardly had any alcohol content at all, hardly anything whatsoever. And remember, they didn't have good drinking water. So they would have to put these things in there for good drinking water. That's, that's what they did, okay? Jewish teachers disapproved of people getting drunk at, at weddings or celebrations or anything else. So we know they're not for drunkenness. And by the way, do you think Jesus is some kind of bartender saying, let's all have a good time, right? There's no way. There's no way he would do that. And so when you look into the culture, you realize they're not getting drunk. Now, which leads us to the thought... I mean, there's too many Christians that you hear over there say, well, Jesus turned water into wine, therefore I can drink. You ever heard stuff like that? When, the moment you hear that, you realize they have no understanding of what those verses mean. They're just taking them out and saying, this is my justification to continue to drink. And that's all they're doing. And that's all they're doing. They do not go back and look what was happening in the original setting and really find out what's going on right there. So, <clears throat> Jesus is not a bartender. He's not getting people drunk that day. Now, now watch verse 10. <clears throat> again, 
It says, most people give the best stuff first and the cheaper stuff at the end. They save for last. Isn't that true of sin? Isn't it true of sin? Doesn't sin always look really good? And when you start down the road of sin, isn't it pretty cool? It's pretty good. It gives, you know, when Moses, it says in Hebrews, Moses, that when he had to make a, he made the decision, he chose to the, be taking the ill treatment as a Hebrew in Egypt rather than for the, choosing the passing pleasures of sin. Passing pleasures of sin. That sin is pleasurable for a time, is it not? But then we know sin equals death. That kicks in. It starts really good. But eventually when it's gotcha, it ends really bad. It was somewhere in the 80s. I was watching TV. And it was just one of those things. It's like there were two commercials right next to each other. And the first commercial was one of those beer commercials and everybody's having a great time. Your life's going to be great. If you, and they're all drinking, having a great time. And none of them have gained weight whatsoever. <laughs> and that commercial ended. The next commercial, right after it, there's a man standing in his living room looking out the window in great despair. And then the voice comes on and starts talking about if alcoholism has destroyed your life. We here at this particular clinic that was advertising, we could help you get off that addiction. Isn't that weird? One commercial telling you, it's great. Oh, man. But the other commercial telling you, this is how it ends, though. See, the world, the sin says, it's great. But it'll never show you how it ends. Never show where it's going to lead you to. That's why all these world things never bring life, do they? That's why Adam and Eve, remember when they sinned and what did they do? They got fig leaves, which means they had to break branches and now these fig leaves are broken off. Are they living or are they now dying? They're dying. And so they're going to have to get more fig leaves if God doesn't do something, correct? Nothing, nothing will fulfill. Nothing will work at all. It's just Jesus. That's why in John 4 when we get there, Jesus tells the woman, everyone who drinks of this water will thirst again, but who drinks of the water that I will give them will never thirst again. It's the most satisfying thing there is. And so here you find him. He says, the head waiter says to the guy, he goes, man, everybody gives the best of first and saves the worst for the end. But you gave the so-so and you saved the best for the end. And I love that because when I got saved early, early 80s, there was this song. There was this song. And I've never forgotten it. And it goes like this. And some of you remember because you might be my age. It says, he gets sweeter and sweeter as the days go by. You remember that one? Oh, what a love between my Lord and I. I keep falling in love with him over and over and over and over again. And I always loved it because he gets sweeter and sweeter and sweeter and sweeter the more you partake of him. The world, more bitter, 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 and bitter as you partake of sin. But he gets sweeter and sweeter as days go by. And let's end with verse 11 because it's time. It says, This beginning of his signs Jesus did in Cana of Galilee and manifested his glory 
and his disciples believed in him. It's the first of the seven signs of John's gospel, the book of the seven signs, the first one, and now everything starts kicking into gear in his life. Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank you, Lord, for your word. Thank you we can read these things a couple thousand years later and draw application for our life from it. Lord, this first of the signs is water to wine. And Lord, that really kicks off your ministry and brings you into the public eye to set on the mission of what you came to do to save us from our sins. Thank you, Father. Thank you for this night. In Jesus' name we pray and we all said, amen and amen. If you need prayer or dedicated your life to Christ, please reach out to us on our social media, on Facebook and Instagram at NBCCNorco, or email us at hello at NBCC.com. Thank you for listening. Don't forget to share and subscribe to this podcast.